All right, everyone. This is Darker Days Radio, Darkling number 36. As uh, casual listeners may know, the Darkling series is uh, typically uh, a sister show to the Darker Days Radio episodes, which covers uh, in-depth topics to the World of Darkness games, and also other games, which we feel uh, are definitely of interest to our listeners. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Warhammer. And joining me on the microphones, uh, we of course have Chris. How's it going, Chris? Hello, um, I'm pretty good, yeah. Uh, I had just recorded today um, a video review of uh, Hybrid. So, um, again, another fancy miniatures type thing that's sort of similar to Warhammer. So, yeah, I've got some stuff ready, and I've been paying lots of toy soldiers and getting lots of good feedback off people, and uh, painting, finished painting Slenderman. So, uh, yeah, good. Outstanding. And, of course, we've got Chig. How's it going, Chig? Pretty good, Mike. How you doing over there? Oh, not bad, not bad. But definitely the uh, man of the hour here is uh, a, a Warhammer legend, I'll say, of the uh, Connecticut area. Very well known amongst uh, people of the Battle Standard and the Games Workshop back when it existed. And that, of course, is Bryce Turner. How's it going, Bryce? Uh, well, only a little embarrassed after that, Mike, but uh, I'm good. <laughs> It was a nice drive up here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so we're going to have a pretty casual episode here because uh, Bryce is actually physically in my room right now, which is uh, not, not usually uh, something we have here on Darker Days. And uh, we've got pizza right in front of us, so uh, you might hear some uh, little, little chewing in the background or something like that. But anyway, yeah, we're here today to talk about Warhammer. Uh, it's a pretty sweet game setting and uh, multimedia franchise uh, created by... Uh, Citadel Miniatures and Games Workshop. Of course, there's a, a long and storied history. It's been around for uh, over 30 years. And uh, there's been you know the miniatures game, role-playing game, video games, a horribly, horribly failed MMO, and uh, a lot of other uh, very interesting stuff. So, yeah, let's just kind of jump right into it, I guess. And uh, let's, let's kind of dig into the Warhammer setting itself. I, I kind of combined uh, here in the show notes uh, that it's a, a game of fantasy battles in a grim world of perilous adventure, which is combining the taglines of the miniatures game, Warhammer Fantasy Battles, along with the uh, role-playing game, which is uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Uh, there's some pretty distinct feels to it. There's a, a very high fantasy uh, aspect to the war game where, you know, there's dragons, uh, magical weapons giant comets falling down from the sky to uh, destroy other people's uh, armies, uh, and just masses of troops battling it out on these uh, uh, grim battlefields. But then on the other hand, we look at the role-playing game, uh, especially in the, uh, the older first edition material, it's actually pretty low fantasy. Uh, the kinds of characters you'd be playing are things like a baker, or a, uh, a highwayman, or maybe um, the a guy who collects... Actor a rat catcher, or a guy yeah. who collects taxes. So it's a, it's a very different feel, yet it's all in the same setting itself. Uh, and really, the, I think the thing that brings it all together is sort of the, the black comedy aspects of it. Um, there's, there's a lot of satire, especially because the uh, world itself is basically planet Earth just changed into a fantasy setting. Um, there's literally... Uh, the default setting is the Empire, which is 
based off of the Holy Roman Empire and exists exactly where Germany is when you compare the real world map to the old world map of uh, of Warhammer. Likewise, there's a uh, a French uh, nation, uh, the Kingdom of Bretonia. Uh, the Grand Duchy of uh, Kislev is alternately Poland or Russia, uh, depending on who's writing it. You have um, Talia, which is, uh, I think, was um, essentially Italy. Uh, you also had Estalia, which was essentially Spain. Um, you've then got Albion, which is essentially where uh, the British Isles would be. Um, Cathay, Ind, and Nippon, essentially, uh, respectively, are China, India, and Japan. Mm. Yep, definitely. There's also uh, there's Ind, which is the Indo, the Indian Empire back then. Yeah. And there's Araby. Oh, of course, Araby. Yes. And then the Southlands, Lustria, mm -hmm. South America, Nagaroth, uh, North America. And, and it's very strange, North America. While um, the uh, <laughs> kind of European locations and actually also the Asian uh, nations and locations kind of stick closely to their uh, real-world counterparts. Uh, if you go to Lustria, uh, which is South America, or Nagaroth, which is North America, uh, you find a lot of elves, lizardmen, and, you know, dinosaurs, which is uh, pretty sweet. I think it was hinted somewhere, I think if you go to the far west of Nagaroth, there are meant to be somewhere in the watery caves some sort of fish people. But you know that may have been retconned out again in one edition. I don't Who know. Knows? That's been a it's been a long running conspiracy theory in the setting that there are fishmen uh, somewhere. Yeah. Somewhere. Um, They're out there. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. So yeah, it's a pretty interesting uh, setting in that regard. Um, that it has these these different nations like uh, like the empire, which uh, stick very closely to their real world historical counterparts uh, in our world. You know, the uh, the empire is very much the Holy Roman Empire, where there's these different uh, elector counts, uh, and they all elect a, a emperor over them uh, based on who can essentially wheel and deal the most uh, in the uh, political arena within that nation. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think uh, my question for Chris is, you know, you and I have had a lot of discussions about cultural appropriation in, okay. uh, in yes. games. Like, uh, I, I can't remember the name of the game, but there was one, uh, the Polish miniatures game, where the orcs also, yes, were uh, very, yeah. very much um, uh, East Asian. Uh, and we, we kind of were a little down on that sort of cultural appropriation. So why is it that when you look at Warhammer it's a lot more cool that they just take real-world nations and then convert them to this fancy setting. Um, I think, first of all, with most of the... most of the, the, the regions, you know, the, that are appropriate. So if we look at, like, the Holy Roman, we've got the Empire, we've got Bretonia, we've got Cathay, Ind, and all those. Like, first of all, with Cathay, Ind, and Nippon, there are no actual... There is hardly any material on them anyway. Uh, and there is basically no miniatures to represent them so it's not really like games workshops even gone about taking any massive missteps in representing them but they are human empires so there's none of this sense of uh in the classic sense that you know in tolkien uh in in middle earth you know the orcs come from and and the southlands are kind of like your kind of 
uh, a standing for lesser humans and all that type of thing. And it's been criticized for that. So um, I, I would say that Warhammer gets a bit of a pass in that while it, it, it does a fantasy take on lots of different regional areas, it doesn't, or time periods, because often uh, like uh, some of these regions are locked into a specific time period from our world as well. So they're not contemporary with each other, really, in that sense. I would say they haven't represented them as being less than another part. So Bretonia isn't considered a lesser group of people compared to the Empire, and the same with Araby. You know, they're, they're just different regions. So in that respect, it gets away with that. Um, and then I would say otherwise, the other places it maybe gets around things is, uh, obviously it has its own uh, unique, uh, well, I say unique, but it has its own set of gods and deities within the setting. Um, and evil is something that more or less comes as an external force to the world, you know, the force of chaos, which we'll get into, rather than being something that's inherent to a particular group of people. Um, and then, uh, I guess it's not really, uh, as for the cultural appropriation for the South American stuff, I, they, I guess there's a bit there, but then, you know, again, they're not really representing South Americans as being less than human by making them, instead that entire area being like, you know, lizard people, because the lizardmen there are actually, they're, they're the good guys yeah. <laughs> to an extent, um, so I guess that's that's kind of okay. Um, so in that respect, I guess Warhammer's been kind of lucky in how it's kind of taken steps to kind of uh, treat different regions. Because um, it could have done it in really horrific ways, uh, like Volsung does, where it goes, oh, look, these people are from the equivalent of China, but they're all basically orcs. And that just makes me go, ugh. You know, because that's kind of Orientalism and and uh, and fetishizing that kind of area, while also making the people from that this non-human race. And then there's also how they treat, you know, like gnomes and making them a bit Jewish and everything. That's a bit weird. So Volsung is, to me, problematic. Warhammer, I don't know. Warhammer just seemed to have seemed to have been really lucky. Well, I think they stamped out a lot of the issues that were previously there. Like, they uh, they had the, the Slan originally in South America, but they also had simply just Amazons, which they oh, yes, got rid yeah. of. Yeah. Um, and additionally, I think those are the main thing. one of the main things that got stamped out. Uh, Femir, that, this is kind of a side thing, but that was a very problematic race uh, that mm. was removed from the setting. Um, and actually, the guy who wrote... Uh, uh, the Famir originally pretty much keeps and keeps up and says that it was uh, it was a huge mistake, uh, but that's that's sort of a side tangent there. Um, yeah, so Chris, you kind of mentioned uh, this this force in the setting, which is chaos, and you know we've we've discussed right now the uh, kind of geographical setup of the world uh, and some of the nation states, but probably one of the most important aspects of this Warhammer setting is is chaos and. Uh, I think uh, this would be a great time for uh, for Bryce you to kind of show your knowledge of the setting and, and explain what chaos is and why it's such a, an integral part of the setting and story of Warhammer. Okay, so um, actually first, let me get a little louder here. Uh, as Chris was saying before about the cultural appropriation, 
I mean, Warhammer actually started in South America, so it's kind of a turn on that whole imperialization. We're going to go civilize that part of the world, and rather life starts there, and the rest of the world starts from there. So you had these, the old ones, they called them in the setting, some star travelers that come to the Warhammer world, set up gates at the North and South Pole. That's their way of traveling between planets. And so they create lizardmen, as we mentioned before, in the Lustria area. Uh, they have the Slan, which are basically toad people, really fat ones, <laughs> that uh, just hurl magic around, make mountains, pretty much just do whatever they want, and then create a whole other race of lizards below them just to build temples and protect them and pretty much do what we do, I guess, every day. Yep. <laughs> and then from there, it's going good. Wizards weren't enough, so they created the quote old races, um, elves and dwarves, and everything that we're all used to from fantasy settings. Everything was co opted from Norse mythology and that stuff. And then what well, underlined this at those gates where they traveled was to link to the place called. Chaos, which I think, well, first we talk about chaos a little bit. It's a realm where nothing makes sense, time doesn't make sense, laws of any kind of science just don't function there. And it's really borrowed from Michael Moorcock's work. Other yeah. people here might know more about that than me if they want to talk about it. Uh, nope, keep going. <laughs> All, right. All right. So... Within there, the, the chaos gates collapsed. Uh, right now, there's actually all the new stuff that's come out. There's some debate as to why they collapsed. Um, the what? Sorry? Say that again? Because I haven't read the new stuff. Oh, uh, so, so there's a debate now whether or not the chaos, the gods who existed in the chaos realm existed before the fall of the gates yeah. and contributed to it. And there's also some stuff to support now that they only existed after the fall of the gates. Okay. So, I mean, it's not, not a huge issue. But either way, the gates collapse, and the emotions of all the beings create these four chaos gods who are mm -hmm. basically the big bads of the setting. And the yeah. four are Zeech, who's the master of deceit and everything going to plan, Nurgle, god of pestilence, and entropy, basically. So, I guess going back to the emotions that they are, Zeech would be... He's like a motion of hope, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. His opposite would be Nurgle, so it would be hopelessness, and that's why he's decay and entropy and everything going to crap. Then there's Korn, the blood god. He's about rage and frenzy and anger. And the last one, the newest one, is Slanesh, which is pleasure and ecstasy and the opposite of Korn. And those are the big bads of the setting. And <clears throat> the problem with them is that they just get fed by the emotions of people, so the more people are in the setting, the more that there's chaos, and their whole thing is just to take over the world and create more chaos. Mm -hmm. Anybody else has anything yeah, else? I think um, the other thing which relates just to, because, I mean, that's all kind of dawn of creation kind of stuff, which is important to Warhammer. Um, the, the other thing I've read, which... 
may or may, here again it's like one of the myths within the Warhammer setting is that the um, so the Warhammer world has its own kind of solar system that it's within and has two moons that orbit it, one of which is called Manasleep, which is very much like our own moon, and the other one is Morasleep, which is this dark greenish kind of uh, erratically moving moon. And apparently uh, this moon came into formation when the Chaos Gates fell. So it's also made of warp stone, which is essentially uh, solidified chaos, um, or the energies of chaos anyway. Right, and on that, the uh, the realms of chaos and warp stone are the realm's version of magic, and then magic solidified, and that's their world and where all magic comes from, just because yeah. nothing makes sense, as I said before. And that is pretty much the um, the 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 where the Warhammer world comes into being. So you have the gates where the old ones came in. They start populating the world with various fantasy races, and eventually humans. And then something happens. The gates collapse, and uh, you know the uh, the north north and south pole are just um, raging, uh, churning. Uh, places where the material world merges with the immaterial. Right, and then from there, the actual the chaos energy is sweeping out is that brings war to the, to, the, uh, to the world and then brings about even new entities that come in. So all the gods have their own respective demons that come over to the world, which act as the main villains. Yeah. And then the powers of those emotions, which... Few of the gods also end up warping different people who become followers of those gods who also act as the antagonists of the setting. Yeah. And <clears throat> other than that, just you have you have the ones created by the old ones, and then you have other races that were mutated by the powers of chaos. So you have the yeah. Skaven, which are rat men, uh, just regular pe- men who are followers of chaos. Yeah, their their origin story is very much kind of a play on the uh, Tower of Babel um, uh, kind of myth, and so it's a whole thing to do with a tower being built and the the place where it was built being cursed, and then finally the bell tolled and warpstone laid down, and the rats came up, and you know everyone died, and the rats just fed on the warpstone and became you know rat people, um, and that's kind of cool because that's quite. Um, to, an, to a degree, I think, is quite uh, 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 original to uh, the Warhammer setting. Yeah, it is. And especially with the new stuff that's coming out, because the, they're changing their setting to the end times, actually shifting yeah. their narrative forward. There's a big take on a Ragnarok kind of theme yeah. they have going, especially in the new book that came about the elf races, and about how all the gods were there, and then chaos is released, and then it was the whole story about how they all get wiped out and then how it keeps repeating itself over and over again. So what Games Workshop does well is take a bunch of stuff from different settings and then try to make it, and then put it together and call it their own. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, definitely. So uh, with regard to chaos, that's actually a very important aspect of the uh, Warhammer fantasy roleplay setting. Uh, as Bryce mentioned, the uh, default antagonist is usually chaos worshippers or those that have been tainted by chaos. So when you finally get to the modern setting where you have the Empire, Bretonia, and this sort of Renaissance era, um, you know, pike and shot setting, the Chaos Gods are not... Well, when you look at the original Warhammer Fantasy roleplay material, the Chaos Gods are very subtle. Uh, they mostly mm. exist by creating these cults within the Empire, which are 
um, existing to primarily sow dissent and uh, eventually just take down the government and the nations. So you might find these mutants uh, that are worshipping Slanesh, let's say, or you will run into a uh, small group of people that have been tainted by Weirdstone or Warpstone and may actually be working with some uh, some Skaven, uh, the, yeah. uh, the Ratmen that we mentioned. Or you have, um, maybe every so often you would have uh, the Beastmen, like a, a small a small pack of them would maybe come out of the, the forests that make up the majority of the Empire and, you know, just ransack the odd village. Yep, yeah, precisely. And when you get to the uh, later setting, especially with, like, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 2nd Edition and the uh, more modern Warhammer, Warhammer Fantasy Battles uh, uh, game, Chaos is slightly more overt. Uh, there's a lot more interaction with these northern tribes, these tribes of humans that live uh, close to the North Pole, where one of those uh, polar gates we mentioned uh, has collapsed. So they're much closer to the, uh, the uh, Chaos energies entering the world, and more overtly worship uh, Chaos gods. So you'll see uh, a lot of uh, material about how there's armies marching down from there uh, of the uh, Norse or the, uh, the Kurgans or the uh, Hung, I believe, of the, uh, the third major tribe. Mm, yeah. And they have these large armies, and they're very brutish men that have been mutated and corrupted by chaos and are, you know, openly attacking, uh, which is the, uh, the drive of many of the, uh, the Games Workshop and Warhammer Fantasy Battles kind of events that have occurred uh, in recent years. Cool. So I think with that, uh, it might be good to just note a couple of the other races in the setting. Um, of course, uh, Bryce, you're a, you're a big fan of the orcs. So what makes them so great? Well, the great thing about the orcs is that it's where a lot of the comedy comes into the setting, uh, both in the role-playing and the actual tabletop battle game, is that you have this whole race of orcs and a whole race of goblins, but instead of them being your average Tolkien orcs, which are evil to the core and just pretty much just pillage and rape and do whatever they want. You have orcs that are based upon British soccer hooligans mm. who pretty much all they want to do is fight, get drunk and fight. And then from there, this made it more and more absurd with the race. They decided that they're all just a bunch of fungus who just kind of grow out of nowhere. And that pretty much all they do is just live to beat people up and just have fun and then that's no one takes them seriously and that's where that's why i liked collecting them for a little bit is just because you don't have to take it seriously when you're playing as them either and it's just you're just there to have fun and pretty much you can do what you want with them awesome all right bryce what was the uh the big event with the storm of chaos what happened why are the orcs so great and what did one of them do well storm of chaos which was Kind of a predecessor to the new end time stuff is where they tried to do a big chaos incursion. They've actually retconned most of it out now. But they had their the ever chosen of chaos, Archeon, come down, besieged the Empire, took out a big chunk of it, sacked uh, Kislev, I'm pretty sure. Came yep. in, started wiping people out, and just when he thought that he was gonna destroy everything, and they had their champion for the for the armies of order out you thought he was going to defeat him couldn't and then all of a sudden comes the orc warlord out of nowhere just looking for a fight goes up to the big bad to the ultimate evil of the setting puts him in his place and just walks away and that's the entire end of the setting which actually angered a lot of people <laughs> but i thought it was hilarious yeah it's pretty good it's 
pretty yeah, good. Grimgore Ironhide has basically just headbutted Angron into, uh, Ar- sorry, Archeon into submission. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, definitely. So some of the other races, just to touch on them, uh, is for example, the Ogres, which uh, I actually had an Ogre army not too long ago, which I just sold off. And um, they're pretty rad because they're just basically a bunch of fat dudes. Um, they're a, a wall of fat and muscle just charging down, and all they care about is, well, as opposed to the orcs who want to you know fight, get drunk, and, and have fun, these guys just care about fighting and eating, and that's really mm-hmm. their big thing. So they're, they're pretty goofy. And another interesting thing in the setting is actually uh, the halflings, which are important to the Warhammer Fantasy roleplay setting because they're one of the playable races. Um, and the halflings are almost, it seems like, just miniaturized versions of ogres. They care about relaxing and eating. Um, and they both, both races actually have this sort of resistance to uh, chaos, which makes them a, a curious part of the uh, overall kind of meta plot. The ogres also have a very interesting deity, the uh, the Moor, which um, is basically kind of like a sarlacc-like giant mouth that exists in the middle of the blasted deserts. And uh, I think it came into being when a warpstone meteorite struck the Warhammer world at that, at that point, and it basically obliterated what was then the ogre society or something like that. And... Um, I think the Moor also ex- is on the opposite side of the world to the vortex of uh, the vortex of magic um, uh, on Ulthwan, something like that. I'm pretty sure, anyway. But yeah, it's a it's a weird deity. Yeah, it's pretty rad. Uh, another uh, important race right now for the overall uh, end times setting that we keep alluding to uh, is, of course, the uh, the vampire counts and the uh, the vampires themselves. Uh, which clearly I uh, enjoy and collect an army of. Um, they're pretty rad and interesting. Uh, there's actually a lot of uh, similarities with uh, the Vampire Counts and Vampire the Masquerade. They uh, they both have uh, clans or bloodlines in the case of the, the Vampire Counts and Warhammer and uh, have have kind of a similar, similar weaknesses and all that. So they're pretty interesting uh, and exist... Actually, a lot of them exist in a part of the... Uh, uh, the empire called Sylvania, which, you know, obviously is similar to Transylvania. Uh, so they're pretty neat. And then uh, there's actually a, uh, something else we should know is that there's a three-way split between the elves. <laughs> um, there's the high elves living on Ulthuin, which is an Atlantis-like island in the middle of what is essentially the Atlantic Ocean, uh, which is a continent that exists in Warhammer, but not in our real-world map. So that's something to note. And they are, I, I don't know, I, I don't really want to call them the good guys, uh, but they are the more order-aligned uh, elves uh, who fought against Chaos in a, a great war that we'll mention in a second. And then there's also been a split. Um, there was a, uh, a very important uh, elf that was uh, supposed to inherit the, uh, the Phoenix Throne of Ulthwin uh, named Malekith. Uh, and of course, due to some... Uh, questionable events. Uh, he did not inherit it and took a number of his followers across to Nagaroth, which is similar to North America, uh, into the cold, blasted lands there and created the, uh, the Druchi, or the, uh, the Dark Elves. And then likewise, there's a third faction, which is the Wood Elves, who exists still in uh, uh, the Old World setting of Europe, uh, basically in, I think what is essentially Provence, 
uh, in yeah. some forest there, uh, a Thel Loren, and they are uh, a kind of, well, they're very chaotic, they're very, very fae-like, um, and that's kind of the uh, inspiration for them. Yeah, they're the remnants of the elven colonies uh, after the elves withdrew from the old world. Yep, correct, correct. So, uh, I don't know, is there is there anything we missed in particular? Uh, the Tomb Kings are oh, kind of intertwined in yeah. the whole undead uh, mythos of, of the setting, uh, and are very important, again, for some of the uh, some of the End Times material. Yeah. And I, I think with that, we've, we've covered all the core armies and most of the uh, important races. Yeah. Uh, well, well, not dwarves, though. Uh, dwarves are are very important and very cool, and uh, this actually be a good time for Bryce to uh, show his knowledge once again, because I don't know too much about them. Oh, uh, yeah. Those ones I collected that burned up in the car. Uh, that's true. Uh, yeah. Anyway, dwarves are... Well, they're pretty much like the dwarves in Lord of the Rings setting. They're reclusive, just hang out in the mountains, mining gold, mining silver. They had a big transgression with the elves, which I think we'll talk about in a bit. Um, other than that, they're just greedy. And they like to drink a lot too, and they have, they're, they focus on engineering and smithing and like all the other stuff from Norse elves or from Lord of the Ring elves or sorry dwarves, or Lord of the Ring dwarves. They're pretty much just dwarves, but they've always had a charm to me. Well, I mean they're the stunties of the setting, so that definitely makes them uh, uh, pretty pretty adorable, if you will. I think one of the interesting aspects of the dwarves here is that they really. Uh, they they take the uh, Lord of the Rings and Tolkienistic dwarves and then just take them a little bit further. You know they're they're grumpy. They have uh, this book of grudges uh, hmm. and, and that sort of an aspect. And there's also the Slayers, Bryce. What about the Slayers? Ah, uh, yes, the Slayers. If you, as a dwarf, commit any minor indiscretion against your honor, you have to shave your head, usually in a mohawk, dye it completely orange. Same with your beard. Uh, start shaping it with pig fat, and then you walk around shirtless looking to get into fights until you finally find a death that was honorable enough to redeem your honor. Yep, definitely. They are... Actually, my my favorite part about that is we talked about the fantasy or the uh, role-playing setting before, and there was the the job of the dwarf messenger, because like we said, it's low fantasy. Your job is to give messages to people. And even if you fail to get a message to somebody, you have to take the oath, give up everything you have, stop wearing shirts, start dyeing all your hair, and just start fighting people until eventually you die. It's a brutal setting. It's definitely a brutal setting. Cool. Um, so is that it for the, the basic setting and, and races and all of that? Um, I think that, that establishes what there is. Um, I think it'll be obvious from when we talk a bit about the meta plot and how that gets us to where where Warhammer is, uh, it'll be very clear how everything is quite interwoven. Um, and I think that will then establish why the Warhammer setting is kind of interesting to play in, because I think, um, I think it's important to say maybe at this point that what we'll talk about and, and the impressions that people can get by looking at the meta plot from Warhammer and, and looking at the war game, those are all very the war game and the metaplot all represent the really big events within the Warhammer world, and that on a normal year, on a on a regular year in uh, a certain corner of the empire, these things don't really matter, and things progress quite normally. You know, the these uh, 
these massive battles and everything are uh, the culmination of lots of 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 politicking and and prophecy and and so forth all coming together to create some you know complete uh you know massive world changing events yeah i think i already agree with that um the battles you see when you're playing warhammer fantasy probably aren't everyday events they're really supposed to be the culmination of or at least as it was originally intended with the setting, culmination of, you know, a, a large war or some sort of a huge political conflict. Uh, as opposed to the way that I think uh, they try to represent it now with, like, an eighth edition of Warhammer, that these are happening all the time, which is pretty unreasonable. If the Empire kept having all of these <laughs> yeah. chaos, beastmen, undead armies just marching across it all the time, it would be decimated pretty quick. Cool. So I think with that, let's uh, move on. We, we'll talk about the uh, the meta plot a little bit of the Warhammer setting. We've already mentioned uh, kind of the, the core origin story, the generally accepted one, that uh, there were the old ones, which uh, came down and created the Polar Gates uh, and created the, uh, the Slan uh, race itself to be its servitors, who in turn created the, uh, the Lizardmen uh, down in Lustria. And then from there, they... Uh, the gates collapsed and the uh, the old ones left, uh, which allowed the chaos gods and their uh, demons to uh, emerge into the world itself. Uh, from here, the the main uh, the the next large conflict was that uh, the elves and I guess the lizardmen down in Lustria as well, uh, kind of independently of, of each other, uh, began to fight a war against chaos to attempt to seal them away. Uh, eventually, the uh, Elves of Ultuan did win, and they uh, sealed away uh, the Chaos Gods and tied up the Winds of Magic entering from uh, the Polar Gates in this uh, large vortex of magic. Mike, you want to mention how the magic is made up of the winds? Okay, that's definitely a good and important part of the setting. Uh, magic comes from Chaos, and the uh, eight Winds of Magic, which uh, come from the Polar Gates, I think... I think the winds actually do move from north to south. Yeah. I, I believe that is a thing. Um, and uh, just as kind of a, another side change into the setting, uh, the elves use all of the uh, all the winds of magic and actually make a blend of it called high magic. But they didn't think that humans could handle it, uh, so they only taught the humans when they uh, when they finally met up in the setting. Uh, the individual winds of magic uh, and set up these eight colleges of magic um which are for example the uh the amber wind which is the uh, beast lore and then there's the um uh, amethyst wind which is the uh death magic um so from that it kind of gives you a lot of flavor for uh how different classifications of magic is is uh uh, defined in the setting as opposed to D&D where it's just like, oh, there's, you can only do necromancy. Well, you can't only do necromancy spells. You can, you can only focus in necromancy, that sort of thing. As opposed to here where if you're casting those fireballs, that's pretty much all you do. Uh, and you have a lot of fire-based magic if you're a bright wizard. But anyway, getting back to the uh, overall plot and story. Um, and it's actually kind of interesting that this setting really has a very linear narrative um, Despite all the background material that goes on, there really is kind of a core story, which we're going to try to follow right here. So the, uh, the elves, uh, in, in towards the beginning, uh, fight this, this major conflict against chaos. 
uh, and eventually seal them off, basically temporarily, by using uh, the uh, the magic and energy entering that uh, allowed the chaos gods to enter uh, against themselves. Uh, however, this sets up a very large uh, uh, political situation where uh, one king basically emerged amongst the elves, and uh, his name was Anarion. Uh, he died fighting against chaos and was uh, very well honored. Uh, and of course, he had a uh, youngest son, Malekith, who, uh, because I believe all of his brothers were killed... Uh, believe dead. Believe dead. Okay, very good. He basically was uh, in line to inherit... But uh, because of the politics of the uh, of the high elves, they didn't let him inherit. Um, they chose another uh, Belshanar, who is uh, an older fellow, uh, because some people in the uh, high elven courts didn't think that Malekith could uh, uh, handle the leadership, uh, despite his uh, excellent military prowess and phenomenal political skills. Um, this uh, denial of. Uh, uh, the crown basically led to a civil war amongst the elves, which caused some great fractures. I believe uh, Nagarond, um, this location, this region of Ulthwin, physically sank into the ocean. Uh, and there was some pretty major fighting going on. Uh, and eventually, Amalekith uh, stepped up to uh, do the uh, ritual of ascension to become the Phoenix King uh, and to walk through the fires of Assyrian. And while his father before him had walked through the flames and was untouched, Malekith was burned pretty horribly. And uh, that's how we get Malekith, who's way cooler than Darth Vader. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty wicked. Yeah, definitely. His mom's um, a bit crazy. <laughs> uh, yeah, she's she's nuts. That's that's another side tangent. <laughs> Obviously, there's a lot of complexities to these, which we're, we're kind of glossing over. Um, there might have been some evil chaos cults in within the High Elf courts at that time as well, which may or may not have hampered Malekith. Um, but suffice it to say, uh, we're going to get to the uh, the next event, the next major political and uh, uh, major conflict of the setting, which is uh, the the War of Vengeance, and I think this would be a great time, or a great thing for Bryce to kind of summarize a little bit. Okay, so right after, as Mike just mentioned, the sundering between the elves, which is where part of their island Uthland sank, and the rest of the now dark elves went to Nagaroth, North America. Um, <clears throat> the elves and the dwarves had always been really close before that time. Malekith, in fact, the the one who left and the one who started the Civil War was the one who treated with the dwarves and made the trades and everything was just great between the two races until Malekith got shunned and had to go all the way over and then got sealed in his suit of black armor. Um, really pissed off, so he said, I'm going to give it back to my cousins back who kicked me out. So what he did is he started to dress up as the High Elves and started attacking Dwarven caravans. And the Dwarves, being proud, obviously, weren't too happy. They, they sent a messenger over to the now Phoenix King, which is the King of the Elves, of the High Elves, and demanded that he pay them back for all the stuff that they attacked. The, high, the new Phoenix King was a little arrogant, and he decided that he was going to send a message to the Dwarves by shaving the messenger's beard. 
and sending him back, which is pretty much the biggest atrocity you could commit in the world. Because even though we have all these people fighting over this and that, it's all these little things that really cause the big wars. So he goes back, no beard, and then the dwarves go to war with the elves, which basically means every elven colony is decimated in the old world. And the elves kill the phoenix king, take the phoenix king's crown, or the dwarves kill the phoenix king, take the phoenix king's crown, win the war, but both races are not the same for it, with the dwarves probably being worse off. Because I think that's about the time that the slan over in Lustria decided to do some interior decorating on the world and move around some mountains, hmm. which causes the orcs and goblins to start popping up into the mountains along with the skaven and to start decimating the already decimated dwarves. And that's the War of Vengeance. It's just about getting each race smaller and smaller till they become more grimdark and more desperate. Yeah, absolutely. So this is kind of the uh, point where you know elves and dwarves start to decline. And that uh, kind of leaves some room for another race to pop up. And uh, in what is essentially Egypt in our world, uh, uh, Nekara uh, becomes a, uh, a very prominent uh, human nation at this time. And it's kind of a strange culture. It's very morbid. Uh, there's a lot of uh, focus on death. And um, at this time, there's a, a dark elf sorceress uh, following the War of Vengeance that uh, washes up on the shores of this nation and is found by Nagash, who is a uh, priest of the Khemri. He's, uh, um, he he's also the son of the then uh, pharaoh or something like that. Yes, yeah. he is. But he cannot inherit exactly because he has to be a priest um, because of their, their sort of cultural um, inheritance traditions. So Nagash is taught by this uh, dark elf uh, sorceress, uh, dark magic, and um, combined with uh, the Khemri funeral rites, um, he basically creates necromancy as we know it. Uh, this, of course, means he's a bad guy. Uh, he uh, creates a large black pyramid channeling all the winds of magic, um, and then he collects a lot of this warp stone, a weird stone, you know, uh, this chaos magic solidified um, for his own uh, magical research. Yeah, and, uh, oh, no, I'll just st I'll step in there because I think um, in the notes I may have pushed a bit too for far forward. So, um, so Nagash obviously with his necromancy um, tries to take over the Kemri lands, um, and that's when he gets driven. And he, I think, he almost succeeds, and that's when he builds his pyramid. But then he gets driven out, and. Uh, it's in the, uh, what is it called? They're called the dead, the deserts of the, something like the dead deserts or something stupid like that. But anyway, he's, as he's fleeing the kingdoms of Khemri, um, and he's almost at death's door, uh, he, he spies uh, a group of uh, Skaven who are also lost in the desert. And he can sense the, uh, the weird stone on them, the warp stone. And uh, he kills them before he, they kill him, and he takes the warp stone, and that's what allows him to survive. And he goes then on to uh, Cripple Peak, which is a mountain. Uh, is it, I don't know. Is it in the world's edge mountains? I think it's, he goes that far north. Uh, and um, yeah, he basically, with the help of the Skaven, he mines that entire mountain consumes warp stone from it and becomes mutated from it 
And meanwhile, uh, Mike, what's going on? While he's off eating warpstone, what what's happening in Kemri? Because we have the the vampires finally arrive. Uh, indeed. So uh, Nagash has done a lot of research into death magic overall, and uh, one of the uh, I, I'll call her a queen. I'm not sure what her actual uh, position was. Uh, Neferata uh, steals one of his magical tomes, and with it, and torturing a, uh, another elven sorceress to uh, learn the secrets of magic, creates this elixir of life. Uh, her intent to, is to uh, live forever. And after she quaffs it, uh, and uh, a few others of her most trusted uh, circle also drink of this potion, uh, they find out that they do get to live forever, but as blood-drinking vampires. So this uh, creates a uh, kind of new elite within uh, Kemri, who are uh, at this time still subservient to Nagash. Uh, he's very, uh, he's still rather powerful, and they are. Um, yeah, they they down um, to him. The vampires essentially try to take over Kemri, and they they fl- they're, they're forced to flee eventually. And so when they get to Cripple Peak, uh, Nagash obviously recognizes the uh, necromantic powers uh, that obviously give them their immortality, and so they become his servants. Which then, of course, leads to Nagash wanting to do his great ritual, which is basically to raise all of Kemri, uh, as, uh, raise the dead in all of Kemri and pretty much everywhere else, uh, and turn it into a land of the dead. Uh, however, uh, the then Kemri king called Al-Kadizar, or something like that, uh, I can't remember the exact name, I believe that is correct. He obviously leads an army to try and take out uh, Nagash, fails, gets, uh, you know, imprisoned, because Nagash is a torturous bastard. Uh, And uh, the Skaven finally see their chance and let the uh, Kemri King out and give him a certain fell blade, a blade of purest warpstone. And uh, uh, basically, the fell blade thing is essentially that it will kill, it it should kill a person, but it will also kill the wielder of that blade. And yeah, Nagash is laid low, uh, but after he's performed part of his ritual. So uh, Kemri is now... Uh, a land of the dead uh, various uh, ancient tomb kings are brought back this was not what they wanted they wanted to come back from the, they wanted to have an afterlife a true afterlife not this uh, this uh, wretch, wretched kind of twisting of, of the idea of an afterlife uh, and Nagash is um, Nagash is basically chopped up most of the stuff disappears so his uh, crown of sorcery that's gone the books of Nagash are already distributed uh, the staff of Nagash, I believe, is another thing that's gone missing. His right hand gets cut off, and that disappears and is used as a as a item of magic of magical power, I think, by vampires. And as for Nagash, his body is chopped up and burnt on a on a pile of warpstone. <laughs> Hopefully, never to be seen again. Uh, the Skaven hope, anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there we go. Um, this great human nation has been decimated. The Skaven saved the day, of course. Um, and <laughs> Seems to be the case. That's, that, that's it for humanity, right? That's, that's pretty much it for them. Or is it? Because uh, not, not too long after, there's, of course, many other human tribes throughout this world that we have. And uh, one of them, uh, in one of these tribes, uh, a man named Sigmar emerges. Uh, 
his his coming is heralded by a twin-tailed comet, um, and he's a he's a mighty Conan the Barbarian uh, sort of a hero. Um, he begins to unite the different human tribes and what will soon become the empire. Um, he saves a dwarf king in Blackfire Pass from a group of orcs, and uh, they basically swear eternal friendship, um, which gives him his first uh, ally with uh, the other old races. And uh, in turn for saving this dwarf king, Sigmar is given a giant warhammer, the uh, skull splitter known as Galmaraz. Um, of course, things weren't exactly done with Agash. Of course, he's a, uh, a, a lich, basically, of uh, immense power, and he was able to um, return to bring himself back into existence. Yeah, his um, Black Pyramid is essentially where he uh, gets resurrected. Each, well, pretty much each time, I think. Correct. Uh, Nagash returns and uh, attacks the, uh, the Empire, or the tribes that are to become the Empire, and he does fatally wound Sigmar. Are we uh, right on that one? Because I, I, it used to be, oh, back in about 4th no, 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 and 5th edition, he fatally wounded, he was the one that fatally wounded Sigmar. But I've read in later stuff that Sigmar does a whole walks off into the mountains kind of stuff, and that's the last scene of Sigma, so... Yeah, yeah. I believe once he's injured, he walks off oh, and okay. vanishes. Yeah, he also has a couple of Chaos incursions to fight off, too. Yeah, Sigma takes out one of the ever-chosen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, yeah, anyway, Nagash is, Nagash is more interesting, let's be honest. Exactly, exactly. Um, of course, uh, defeating uh, Nagash and uh, heralding this great Warhammer causes vampires to, be, to fear the mark of Sigmar and the uh, Warhammer of uh, Sigmar's future priests and clerics. Yeah, uh, so the vampires um, are cursed by Nagash because uh, they decided not to come and help. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's a lot of the, uh, that's a lot of the kind of older, more historical aspects of, uh, of the Warhammer setting. And now we're actually finally getting to the parts that you get to play uh, in some of the various uh, Games Workshop games and Warhammer-related games. So, um, you know, the Empire uh, kind of comes together. The uh, different tribes become the electors of the different provinces of the Empire. And uh, they start to have this, you know, government exist. Um, it runs okay for a little while. There's some good emperors. There's some bad ones. Things kind of start to fall apart at one point, And there's actually three separate uh, electors that declare themselves emperor of this, uh, of this great nation. Um, and all the while, a very important aspect of the setting is that uh, people, uh, citizens of the Empire, actually begin to worship Sigmar, uh, this uh, first emperor that united their nation. And one of the interesting things is that as they worship him, his priests and then warrior priests actually start to exhibit uh, spells and magic, uh, similar to uh, the priests of other gods, whether they be chaos gods or some of the older uh, gods of uh, humans or, or elves. So that's a very interesting point, is that somehow Sigmar became a god during uh, his life, or, or after his life, I should say. Of course, the uh, Empire is beginning to fall into ruin uh, due to this, uh, this civil war, three-way civil war that's going on. Uh, but one of the uh, great cities at this time, which is still... Um, doing very well uh, economically and all that, is Mordheim, uh, which is, I believe, in Ostermark, that mm -hmm. province. 
it's it's a very wealthy city, but there's quite a bit of decadence there. Uh, and the individuals there are very afraid that uh, uh, things are falling apart around them. Uh, uh, the year is 1999 in the imperial calendar. Uh, there's a, a new uh, millennium coming. Uh, there's a lot of uh, doomsaying in the streets. But then, luckily, they see a sign. In the sky is another twin-tailed comet. It's flying just above their city. The citizens are all very happy and excited. They haven't seen this sort of a thing since uh, the heralding of Sigmar. And uh, pilgrims and uh, individuals that want to be absolved of their, of their sins essentially flock to the city. And the comet gets brighter and bigger. It keeps coming. And uh, festivals are held and everyone's very excited in more time. Until the comet crashes down and kills everyone. And creates a uh, blasted city, and uh, in, in, in complete ruins. Uh, and this actually sets up the uh, setting of a uh, skirmish war game for Warhammer called More Time, where different uh, war bands and gangs uh, venture into the city to fight over uh, uh, Warpstone. Because this meteor that fell was actually uh, not not a heralding of Sigmar, but a demon prince from the uh, Moon Morslib. The, uh, one made of warpstone that we mentioned mm -hmm. before, uh, crashing down, a shard of warpstone crashing down on this location, the city, uh, and releasing him back into the world. Uh, and this actually is kind of interesting because it starts a uh, sort of a, a side arc within the Warhammer story of this uh, demon prince, Bellacor, uh, who was the first ever chosen um, of Chaos. I, I got that quite wrong. He's not the first ever chosen. He's, he's got a really weird thing. He's, um, he hates all the ever chosen. But he's one of the first demon princes, and he is, for some reason, cursed to bestow the items of power and crown every ever-chosen. Uh, one of the things he did do, uh, which relates back to Sigmar, is he actually did possess one of the ever-chosen. That was the one who invaded the Empire when Sigmar was about, and who, obviously, Sigmar <laughs> smashed the hell out of. <laughs> But yeah, Bellacor is interesting because um, you get this feeling that Bellacor is almost, almost a proto kind of fifth chaos god. In the sense that he hates the chaos gods, he hates them for what they make him do. Interesting. Is he? He's a Malal. Yeah. Can yeah. he be a stand-in for Malal? Yeah, Malal. Is, they uh... have to write out because they don't have. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. That's pretty neat. Why did they have to write this guy out? Because it was borrowed from Michael Moorcock's stuff. <laughs> uh, uh, no, 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 no. no, it was actually... Or was it enough? Uh, one? I'll let Bryce. Malaw was, they had... I don't remember the name of the author, but they had somebody writing at Games Workshop, and he yeah. created the idea of Malaw, and then when he left, he left with all that copyright stuff yeah. with it, so they couldn't use it anymore. Right, because wow. they didn't do it as work for hire. It was... Uh, um, he still got to retain the rights to his ideas and all that. They didn't really have a very firm contract, uh, which has actually happened a couple other times. Yeah, Space um, Marines. For example, <laughs> with, uh, with, what's his name? Jess uh, Goodwin. No, no, no. Uh, well, I'm sure there's something with him. But uh, Kim Newman wrote some Warhammer novels, uh, which are very popular, uh, about the vampire Genevieve oh, and yes. uh, Drakenfels. Yeah. And they actually wanted to use those two characters in The End Times, but they don't have the rights to the names. So they just have this mysterious uh, Leonese vampire who shows up and talks to people. And then they also have the Nameless, yeah. and that's supposed to be Constance Drakenfels. <laughs> but, 
But anyway, getting back to the story. Um, from here, uh, we have the uh, the more time setting, uh, which occurs, and then following that, uh, eventually the empire is reunited, um, particularly by one individual named Magnus the Pious, who is a uh, an emperor who uh, brings all the uh, humans back together to fight off another chaos incursion, as it's in uh, Kislev to the east, mm-hmm. which is the kind of Poland, as to the uh, uh, empire's Germany, uh, and he finally. Uh, reunites not only with the dwarves, but also with the high elves. Uh, Teclos finally makes his way over to the Empire. He's a, a very powerful arch uh, magus of, of the high elves and uh, teaches the humans magic, um, safe ways of, of using, or safer ways of, of using magic, and creates uh, the colleges of magic um, dedicated to the eight different winds. So finally... Uh, magic is legal again in uh, the Empire, and uh, Magnus the Pious marches on Kislev and, and saves the day. Uh, and that's kind of the uh, default setting of kind of like a Warhammer 3rd edition and 4th edition, I believe. Yeah. Um, and, and Mike, just because it's important to the setting somewhat, that Teclis is a descendant from the first High Elf King we mentioned before. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, yes, he is. Uh, and in fact, Malekith, that uh, same son of Inarion that we mentioned, he's still alive as well, encased in that uh, sweet suit of black armor. So, uh, from there, the uh, Bellicor story arc continues, actually, uh, with this uh, Dark Shadows setting, which was a, uh, a campaign uh, hosted by Games Workshop set on uh, Albion, which is the Celtic... Uh, uh, British Isles uh, uh, area of the world, uh, where he finally uh, is able to um, properly uh, recreate himself and uh, manifest within the material world. And all the while, uh, different Warhammer armies are there uh, battling over uh, different... Well, basically just battling over the islands and uh, trying to lay claim to it and some of the uh, powerful artifacts that are found there. Uh, the story continues, uh, still kind of completing Bellacor's story arc, uh, and that is the uh, the Storm of Chaos that we mentioned. Uh, this has been partially retconned, but uh, the important facts of the story, which still remain, is that a uh, large um, incursion of uh, of Northmen, of the Norse and the, the Kurgans, uh, come down, march through Kislev, and essentially devastate it, and they charge into the Empire. And uh, as they march upon uh, Middenheim, which is this uh, great uh, city on, on the White Mountain, they uh, once again see in the sky that there is a, uh, there's a comet, a twin-tailed comet. And that seems to herald an individual uh, who looks exactly as Sigmar is portrayed in all the, uh, the art and, and literature, which is a, a young, strong man with uh, flowing blonde hair. Uh, and he actually has a birthmark on his chest, which is a twin-tailed comet. So it seems as though he is uh, perhaps Sigmar's successor. Uh, but this does create some uh, political issues in the Empire, uh, because I believe the uh, Emperor, Karl Franz, is supposed to be, at least illegally, the descendant of Sigmar, the inheritor of Sigmar. So, uh, Bryce, maybe you can... You were actually playing Warhammer at the time of the Storm of Chaos, so maybe you could kind of... Uh, jump in here and uh, give a bit more detail to this whole event. And uh, since you're further along in the end times than I am, maybe you can kind of just stick to the important facts that are still retained in the uh, overall story. 
All right. Well, I wasn't huge into Storm of Chaos because that's when I kind of dropped out for a little bit. And as we've said before, most of it's been retconned out. I think what you were talking about is there were people who tried to leave and follow Valton because they thought he was the chosen of Sigmar, and he's it, and he's our second coming of Jesus kind of thing. Yeah, he's discovered by um, the Sigmarite priest uh, Luther Huss. Um, yeah. Right, that was it. And then you still have Karl Franz, who's in charge. Uh, I think he ends up giving Galmaraz the hammer that belonged yeah. to Sigmar to Valton. Yeah. And it all culminates, and then the, there's a division, and then we have Middenheim, who doesn't really follow Sigmar anyway. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember who they follow. Wolfric? <laughs> uh, um, is that it? Oh, that's something like that, yeah. Um, no, yeah. No, no. Um, so, Ulrich. yeah, Vol- yeah. Ulrich, that's one. Yeah. And. I think at the, at the the final battle that we said right you know, earlier on about you know where um, Grimgor Ironhide comes in and you know saves the day, um, Volton gets critically injured at that battle, but he doesn't die. Uh, he gets taken back to Middenheim or something like that, and it was originally written that, and this is now retcon that the Skaven. Uh, assassinated Volton while he was in on you know uh, on it on his uh, you know being tended to for his injuries, but that's all now retconned, isn't it? Yeah, that's all gone now. And just because we promised before that the Storm of Chaos was the end of the Bellicor arc, he yeah. has a big demon army that just kind of gets blinked out of existence by Teclas. Oh yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Oh, and also with uh, Storm of Chaos, um, the High Priest of the Sigmarite. Uh, uh, church um, who this has his that, mustache. Yeah, with the Jade Phoenix. He go doesn't he go off into the Chaos Waste to try and stop the Chaos Army and he gets like he gets brutally murdered by Archeon, yet somehow comes back. Um, but uh, somebody keeps weird. him alive and uses him as a, as their standard. As standard, yeah. And then he but he gets released and he's actually, you know, back to kind of working uh you know, he's able to actually be himself, though he's somehow empowered. And that seems to be kind of a theme that goes into end times with certain characters. Like, you think they're dead, and then, you know, weird stuff happens. Well, also in end times, it's just everybody's dying. They're just, <laughs> yeah. They just want the setting to be as small as possible now, I'm feeling, because they feel it's gotten too big, and that probably for legal reasons, their copyrights are too hard on their 16 armies they have. So now they're trying to consolidate things down. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so with end times, so like end times takes place like a few years after Storm of Chaos and the obliteration of Kislev and. Uh, well, and- Storm of Chaos, there is no Storm of Chaos. It was retconned out, so Kislev was never touched. There was no besieging of the Empire. All that stuff is gone. Oh, I thought all that still happened. That like Kislev still. I thought Kislev is now dead. Well, Kislev is gone now because Chaos has wiped it out again. Okay. So, so sort of those, uh, those events are sort of folded in, but they're not a separate event. They're just the prelude to the end times. Right, and a lot, a lot of things go a step further. Like, instead of Kislev just being sacked, now Kislev is just utterly destroyed, and there's yeah. nobody left. And Because that was one army they didn't have miniatures for, so they, they destroyed it. <laughs> yeah, anything to say about that, Mike, and your old uh, Kislev models? They're just getting so expensive on B-Day. I can't wait to sell them. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. 
Um, but the End Times has Mike's favorite Necromancer back, which oh, is yeah. the first book. That's right. Nagash is back. So uh, the End Times is uh, kind of the current event that's going on. Um, it's supposed to be, as I was just informed, a, a five-book series. Uh, and three of the books are out so far. And they're describing uh, basically uh, really just a Ragnarok sort of situation um, where gods are coming down, huge battles are occurring, and they're killing off characters left and right, and also bringing some classics back, which is definitely pretty cool. Um, it's prequeled by a... It was actually unknown at the time, but it was prequeled by a, a uh, small Warhammer campaign called Sigmar's Blood, which kind of uh, brought back um, the the vampire accounts into power in Sylvania. Uh, oh, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, Manfred von Karstein uh, kind of returned and made his presence known and is finally making some ploys to uh, uh, take power back. Uh, this leads directly into the uh, Nagash book, which is out. Um, I don't know if we want to spoil that much, but uh, as you would assume, Nagash probably comes back. And there is a, uh, a lot of strife going on. Um, it uses a lot of elements from the Storm of Chaos, especially the beginning of the Storm of Chaos, which was kind of the cool part that a lot of people liked about that uh, whole big worldwide game event, but replaces the ending and kind of ties it into this new uh, end times story arc. So Valton is still a character, and uh, he matures and becomes a, a great leader within uh, the Imperial Army. Additionally, uh, characters like Vlad von Karstein, who's uh, kind of a classic character of the setting, uh, he returns and is uh, brought back to life. Uh, there's some new characters as well. Uh, the uh, second book is called Glotkin, which is uh, t- uh, three Nurgle-blessed yeah. brothers uh, who are brand new to the setting um, and are kind of interesting. And uh, they're they're marching down from the north to uh, take out the uh, the empire. And of course, uh, we finally have the third book, which just came out, called End Times Cain, which begins to resolve all of the. Uh, interesting things that were going on with the elven nations and it's uh spoiler alert stuff happens with malekith as you would assume <laughs> yeah one thing though is that about this just the scale of the end times especially compared to storm of chaos because storm of chaos was kind of the old world that we just keep discussing whereas the end times is everything's going down the lesser nations we mentioned before telia astalia araby all that is being overrun by skaven Ratman, yeah. um, <clears throat> Lustria, and Nagaroth are being besieged by both Chaos and Skaven um, to the point where they can't really hold them off anymore. Uh, I won't go into it too much. Yeah, the, please, please um, don't spoil anything. I'm trying for you, Mike. <laughs> the Oak Kingdoms are on, on the march because there's just complete, you know, uh, geological uh, apocalypse going on in their lands. Um that mostly is the reason why. No, wait, I guess Cathay is a very easy place to to wipe out with regard to chaos because they're already kind of sort of aligned with Zinch, so they're kind of done for. Um, yeah, it, it really does. It really does. Like it is Games Workshop going. What do we not have miniatures for that people have been have and could make miniatures for? Let's kill it all off. And then uh, the lizard men that have some kind of exodus planned. We don't know where they're going, but they're going somewhere. Oh, I hope they go to the moon. That'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all pretty much. Which moon? 
Well, yeah. So, yeah, Warhammer End Times is pretty, pretty epic level of stuff going on because, again, kind of, um, we've got the Chaos Gods and we've got Nagash because, like we said, with Bellacor, he was kind of like had this kind of feel of of being a fifth Chaos God, something to fight, something powerful that was evil, but yet tried to, in his own way, was stood against them. And Nagash is also kind of this big bad who, you know, the Chaos Gods live on, live off the psychic, essentially live off the psychic energy, uh, be it through prayer or whatever else. They live off the psychic energy of the inhabitants of the Warhammer world. So Nagash is a pretty big deal to the Chaos Gods because you can't really re- live off the psychic energy if everyone's dead and it's just a planet that's a perfect world of dead, of, of uh, you know, a dead world with an empire of, de- of the dead led by death perso- personified. And so Nagash is a really, really big deal in the Warhammer setting. Yes. Yes, he is. Um, yeah, it's really interesting uh, and exciting. And uh, for people that don't really follow Warhammer too much, the reason why the end times is really so cool is that for the longest time, they didn't. Uh, Games Workshop didn't really advance the story of Warhammer. And they kind of had a minor update when I think Fifth Edition came out. Uh, they they changed around the Lizardmen and redid Bretonia, um, but yeah. the story didn't really advance. Um, they kind of had some advance with uh, the Dark Shadows campaign, but that was pretty minor. It was a small conflict on, on the Isles, and it did kind of continue the whole Bellacord story, but didn't really have any drastic changes. Uh, Storm of Chaos promised some changes, but ultimately nothing really happened. Middenheim was not destroyed, and Archeon got really depressed and walked away after he got headbutted by an orc. Um, but finally we get to the end times, and they're really starting to to do things. Um, a lot of the uh, cool plot lines that have been hinted at in different books um, are finally coming to fruition. Uh, there's a lot of interesting analysis into how this world actually works and what the, uh, the interaction between, say, the Chaos Gods and the other gods, the, uh, the human gods like Tal, Renald, uh, Sigmar, etc., uh, and how the Chaos Gods all kind of uh, intermingle and how they coexist, uh, as well as just you know the boots on the ground sort of conflict going on. So it's all pretty interesting. It's pretty good. And just at a at a meta level, it we I say that they've all been shrinking everything. That I feel like they're making it smaller. But a lot of it's just a return to fourth or fifth edition before they made some changes. For example, they talked a lot about the undead stuff. All the Kemri and all the vampire counts all used to be one army together. Yeah. Before, before they separated out, but now they're back together. Same with uh, same with chaos. They used to be one army. They made them three. Now they're all one army again. Yep, yep, absolutely, absolutely. So I think from here, uh, we should kind of just jump on over and talk about Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay a little bit. Uh, obviously, Darker Days Radio is a role-playing-themed podcast, so we should talk about the uh, role-playing game associated with, uh, with Warhammer. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I've got some of the books, but I haven't played the game yet. Um, I don't think Bryce has, and uh, Chig, have you played at all? Uh, Warhammer is actually the one largest section of role-playing that I have completely avoided. <laughs> I have played 3rd edition and hated it. <laughs> uh, and I had 2nd uh, edition as a book, but never got around to running it. Um, so... I do have a question. 
I do have a yes. question about uh, about the setting. You said at the start of the uh, Darkling that uh, the Warhammer um, uh, minis game is super high fantasy, where you have dragons and spell slinging and all this going on. But the uh, Warhammer role playing game is is lower fantasy, where you're basically just some turd who floats to the top of the uh, pile and may make some money. Um, how did they reconcile the two in, in between the games? How do they, how do they, how do they say, well, yeah, okay, in in this version of the game, we totally have dragons that are on every battlefield and big giant orc tank things. But over here, you're going to go into the sewers and you're going to hunt some uh, some rats. Essentially, the the events that that games of Warhammer represent are blips in a, a rather larger time frame of jackal happening and just you know just it just being grim dark horror because it, it's kind of the same way as say like um, any other say setting like say uh, take War Machine for example. Uh, a lot of the big events in that are really big blips along a very long timeline where not much else happens for a while. So, so you have to think that yeah, there are dragons and and everything, but you you've got to really think that when you're playing the war game, this isn't everyday occurrences. This is like once in a in a hundred years, some suddenly someone you know the elves have taken to the battlefield and they've brought a dragon because it's because for the first time in in, say, even a thousand years, this dragon is awake. Uh, it's that kind of thing, really. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, another cool thing about Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay in all three of the editions is that magical items are extremely, extremely rare. <laughs> yeah. Because all the ones that have been created are owned by those nobles and kings and and uh, warlords who are all going to war. Uh, none of the other... No other magical items really exist uh, than the ones that have been currently found and are owned by someone. Even regular think, items are hard to find. Yeah, I think I think the 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 nearest you can get to uh, something which kind of blends between the, the the kind of high fantasy of the war game and the low fantasy of the role play game are maybe things like Mordheim as a setting because it kind of blends between the two, and uh, and Warhammer Quest obviously. Hmm. Indeed, and we'll, we'll cover those in a little bit. But yeah. let's talk about the uh, the role playing game because it's had three editions and they're all a little bit different. Um, yes. Of course, there was the first edition, which was published by Games Workshop back in 1986. Uh, it has a percentile system, and the uh, stat block of the characters is actually very similar to the miniatures game. You know, in, in the miniatures game, your your little units, your little troopers, will have weapon skill, ballistic skill, number of wounds, and initiative. And that's pretty much all mirrored on the uh, character sheet for uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Yeah, you just get extra things like, uh, was it, like tenacity and fellowship. And, yeah, or intelligence, of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. yep. And one of the uh, coolest things is the uh, career system of uh, Warhammer yes. Fantasy Roleplay, uh, which is uh, this sort of a zero-to-hero style thing where your characters start off with uh, very very basic career like they uh as i mentioned before that might be like a baker or a rat catcher uh with his small but vicious dog <laughs> and from there once you complete all of your advances in a career you can exit and move on to a different career 
uh, you will be able to become, uh, from a rat catcher, you might become a warden, and you might have now a club instead of a sharp stick. And then from there, maybe you'll become a magister or something. You'll slowly advance through your career, uh, become more powerful, and uh, get newer, cooler things. Another interesting thing is uh, fate points, and uh, I believe that's what they're called. I actually have to go check the book. But essentially, uh, you have these specific points that can be used to um, save your character from dying, because much like Call of Cthulhu, uh, your characters kind of suck, and it's very <laughs> easy for you to be killed by these horrible, horrible monsters that you're running into. But that's okay, because you've got your fate points. So uh, if your character is uh, down on the floor, lost all of his wounds, he's bleeding out, you can spend a fate point to live. But something horrible may still happen to you. Maybe you lost an eye, uh, lost an arm, or maybe now you're just captured uh, and are going to be using a sacrifice. So good luck getting out of that one. Um, that's kind of the basic uh, tenets of the setting uh, and, and the system. Um, well, uh, Mike, sure. Uh, I don't know if it was in just third edition. Someone else can correct me, but they also have corruption points, a lot like Ravenloft has now just do all the chaos stuff and how it influences your character if you pretty much do anything. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you're a, a mage in basically any of the editions, uh, you can get the uh, Curse of Zinch, uh, which is a uh, corrupting influence of chaos when you're casting spells and the like, which uh, while spells are and magic is very, very powerful and very flavorful for the setting, uh, it's also extremely dangerous, especially with uh, miscasts, which can do anything from zapping you with a lightning bolt to summoning a greater demon. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of a first edition right there. Uh, it had a number of supplements, but uh, because it was a rather early role-playing game, they're, they're kind of all over the place. There are some small tie-in supplements, like the Drakenfels one. Uh, there's supplements covering cities, others covering um, dwarves. And yeah, the source books and adventures are, are kind of spread out. Uh, probably one of the coolest things, though, about First Edition is that it was very good about mixing adventures along with the source material. So you get an adventure like uh, Blood on the Reich, which is, uh, I think, the first in the very classic Enemy Within uh, yeah. uh, campaign setting. And along with that, you get half the book just dedicated to uh, different information on uh, Reichland, which is a, a province of the uh, Empire. And that was really cool for people to read as the whole Warhammer setting was developing, which uh, is one of the things that made Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay so popular. Uh, with that, uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay kind of fell to the wayside. Uh, Games Workshop stopped publishing it pretty fast because miniatures are far, far more lucrative. Uh, Hogshead Publishing uh, and James Wallace picked it up for a little while and mm -hmm. uh, published it. Uh, they didn't uh, update the edition at all, but they did come out with some uh, new adventures and uh, uh, were supposed to change the ending to The Enemy Within, but I don't think that ever happened. Um, but suffice it to say, eventually the license lapsed back to Games Workshop. And finally, in 2005, uh, Black Library, in conjunction with Green Ronin, a very popular and well-known role-playing game company, uh, published the second edition. Uh, it has a similar percentile system and cleaned up the overall more of a fantasy roleplay experience based on you know, the 20 years of experience that they had. The careers are similar, but uh, they brought in a lot of newer and more updated uh, careers based on how Warhammer had changed over the years. Uh, and also added in some new feat-like abilities, uh, similar to like D20's feats, just to give characters more abilities and options.
the kind of important thing about second edition is that it was very heavily influenced by the Storm of Chaos campaign that we uh, mentioned before. Um, so at this point, uh, Middenheim has been decimated and there's still roving bands of Chaos Marauders walking around the Empire. Um, so it's not as uh, low-key as first edition was, where you're mostly dealing with uh, hidden conspiracies and cults. And you're actually, in this case, uh, dealing with uh, much larger uh, uh, threats and more overt threats. And that's also reflected in the uh, adventures that came out for it, uh, such as the um, Paths of, Paths of the Damned and the 10,000 Thrones. Cool. Uh, so that's pretty much it with 2nd edition. And then finally there's 3rd edition, which is definitely by far the most controversial of all the editions. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, have a, I have a bunch of the books. I've got like the, the core set and some stuff. And it's published by Fantasy Flight Games. came out in, I believe, 2009. Mm-hmm. And it's far more complicated than the other two editions and a lot different, which uh, did not endear it uh, to the existing community too much. Uh, it has a lot of uh, board gaming components. So yeah. you have your small little character sheet, and then you have a little character class card right next to it. And then all of your abilities are on small cards. Um, there's a lot of chits and bits for keeping track of things. And there's essentially a lot of a lot of space taken up at the table and a lot of bookkeeping as a result. And they um, did that on 3rd edition? Yeah, it's 3rd yeah. edition. Wow, which, it took D&D in a whole extra edition to get that horrible. Uh, I wouldn't call it horrible. Uh, there's a lot of very cool ideas, and it's nice that the abilities are all printed out right there, so you don't have to reference the book constantly. Um... But, you know, there's, there's some issues. Um, because, first off, the game uses custom dice, which is always kind of annoying. Um, the, the dice have uh, symbols on them, rep- representing success, failure, uh, boons and banes, which are just kind of like slight successes or slight failures, or mm-hmm. uh, issues that might happen during your action. Uh, and they also have exceptional failures. So this is kind of cool, because um, when you roll your dice... You might succeed at something, but there's a slight problem with it. You know, you six, if you get a bunch of successes and a couple of banes, perhaps that means that your character picks the lock, but as you do so, the door creaks open. So uh, the, the cultists in high, inside the, the room now heard you, and they know you're there. So it's pretty cool for that sort of a storytelling aspect. But on the other hand... Um, you have a lot of these ability cards, which are very constricting. Uh, similar to, let's say, 4th edition D&D, there's a lot of uh, uh, just looking at your abilities that your character has, and they're saying, like, oh, I'm going to take this action. You know, I'm going to use a, a killing blow on this guy, um, which I think kind of makes it a little less story-driven and, and narrative-driven mm-hmm. during combat, um, which, which is fine. I mean, it's still fun to have that sort of a, a tactical nature to your game. Uh, it's just a bit different than how Warhammer Fantasy roleplay previously was in the other editions. It's interesting because the, the system that they've used for that edition of Warhammer seems quite well accepted for um, Star Wars, because obviously it's, the, it's Star Wars uses, again, custom die system very similar to what they've used for Warhammer. So I think, I think it, as you say, Mike, it's just the, 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 the Warhammer fantasy fan base just was like, nah, I'd rather just go buy PDFs of second edition. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so overall, I mean, 3rd edition was very well received by a lot of people, and it got very good reviews. It's just that the existing fan base um, was not as, as thrilled or excited. 
but overall it's it's an interesting one and it's uh there's a lot of really cool game design decisions made with it which uh makes it good to check out i think that's it with with role playing do you guys have any other comments or um to point out? not right now i mean i guess after we've talked about just the the next section we could always go back into really what makes warhammer fantasy roleplay like the type of stories and type of gameplay you get out of it as an experience maybe or what we expect from it um but yeah we can always just do that as the final bit like why we like why we want to run it or why we want to play it really i think that's what we're getting at because obviously i've not run it i've played it uh, I've played third edition, but there's, I think there's, there's, it offers a certain type of fantasy setting that I don't think that I think still stands out from a lot of other ones out there. Hmm. Indeed, indeed. Um, yeah, let's talk about the spinoff games a little bit, and then that'd be a good uh, closing remark, I think, about just yeah. why we're excited about Warhammer in general. Yeah. Uh, so, I'm more time. Gonna, this is gonna be oh, kind no. of a free for all, but yeah, Warhammer yeah. spinoff games. Um, yeah. More time uh, is I, awesome. <laughs> it, it's amazing. Uh, I picked up the box set years and years ago. I think in like 2000 or something, and I still got still got the rule book. Still got some of the miniatures kicking around. It's it's great. Um, More time is just to let people know. You know, Warhammer Fantasy Battles kind of an expensive game. Big armies, lots of miniatures. Games Workshop miniatures are pretty pricey compared to others. Uh, but then on the other hand, they released Mordheim, which is this skirmish game uh, set in the Warhammer universe during that, uh, that event that we mentioned before, where it's this kind of blasted ruined city covered with warp stone, which a lot of people want as, uh, uh, for magical experiments or, or what have you. Uh, and you only need like 10 guys per side, so that made it a lot more economical uh, for a lot of people. And it had this really awesome... Uh, campaign setting so you could interlink your battles um and you could keep much like watching the uh yeah. the ebb and flow of your of your forces and uh yeah chris it's much like necromunda as you and gorkamorka uh, yeah and gorkamorka yeah <laughs> um and the interesting thing about when mordheim came out as well is that because the the two main gang the two gangs that you get within it uh, the scenery was really cool for the time a bit of a pain to put together but um the gangs you got were skaven and uh, uh, oh, what were they? Are they called? Were they just called Empire Militia or uh, they're, they're mercenaries? Mercenaries, yeah. mercenaries, yeah, just mercenaries. But those, the, the plastic kits for those were also the the basic plastic kits that were being used then for the Empire Militia and Skaven gutter runners in Warhammer. So again, it kind of it was. Uh, you can often see some of these games as being the basis for experimenting with certain kits that they suddenly developed, like Gorkamorka was also, at the time, they made new plastic orc trucks and orc vehicles, because, you know, third edition uh, was coming up for 40k, and they had to do orcs and stuff. So, um, yeah, Mordheim was, is, is wicked, still is. Um, so my personal experience, we played a hell of a lot of it for, like, at least a good, two or three years maybe uh and i made some custom scenery for it and a friend's dad put together a custom board using the scenery out of the box but the board was double layered uh so we also had the uh the tunnels and sewers under the city oh. so we we could play what we could play mordheim in that as well which was wicked oh that that sounds really awesome yeah 
that was really really cool and perfect for the Skaven yeah yes. uh, Mordheim, Mordheim's a good one <laughs> Uh, and actually, uh, a new Mordheim video game is coming out. So yes. if you don't want to buy the miniatures, you can still get the full experience. And it's actually, guys, it's really good. Um, I already I already did the early access, which I usually never recommend. But okay. Cyanide is doing a good job so far. And uh, there's what only two c- armies right now. You can play the Skaven and the, the Mercenaries. Is it Cyanide? Yep. Yes, oh, it is. The same guys that do the uh, Rackham uh, computer games. And they did the Blood Bowl one a couple years yeah. ago. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, so that's definitely something to check out. Other other spin-off games, uh there was Man of War, which I never oh, played. That was Ancient. the best game ever, Mike. Alright, we'll have to check it out sometime, but uh it's it's kinda tough nowadays. Where do, where are you gonna find a box set? You're not. You can I've got a PDF of the Man of War rules, so it's just a case of getting uh miniatures to represent it, so I think there's some equivalents out there well didn't have a bunch of like cards wasn't it it was during the games workshop phase where they were uh, like magic cards and weather cards and all this other stuff oh uh, well manowar was essentially the kind of thing they brought out around about the same time when they were doing epic space marine and that had a lot of cards for each of the units and and for titan legions and and so forth so it was kind of heavy on the amount of cards for that as well it's also available on eBay for $16. Wait, what? Really? Box set? What? Man of War Corset Games Workshop 0141 Warhammer New in Box Unpunched Never Open. Holy crap. <laughs> Pause the show, guys. I'll go check well, that out later. It but... was available on eBay for $16. <laughs> These wow. three fools oh have just upped it to 90 Good job, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Um, all right, you guys can keep talking as I look at this uh, Man of War set. Uh, so obviously, um, more recently, uh, the equivalent to Man of War they brought out uh, again. It's because Games Workshop every so often do these very self-contained uh, games. They also brought out Dreadfleet. So Dreadfleet's a bit different in the sense that you have two fleets which are made up of ships from all of the different armies that make up the good guys or the bad guys. So, like, you know, the good guy fleet has a ship that represents the Empire, one that represents the Elves, one that represents the Dwarves, yada, yada, yada. Uh, how well received it was, I, I think it did okay, but you'd often, you would often you can easily still get boxes of Dreadfleet. So uh, I don't think it was that well received. Um, Warhammer Quest. Warhammer Quest was really good. So Warhammer Quest was essentially a, uh, a tabletop miniatures game dungeon uh, where you and your friends cooperatively played against the game itself. So as you go through the tunnels and, and corridors of the dungeon, uh, you would randomly generate the rest of the dungeon using a deck of cards. Uh, and then after you've gone into the dungeon for a certain number of rounds, then you would eventually, hopefully, get to the main treasure chamber that you're meant to go into. Um, so there was no GM to run the game it was because it obviously had some sort of it it used an ai basis and again this is a game that we played that i played with my mates for like a summer or so uh and we i think we had every expansion i was playing a chaos warrior which was pretty good fun um but then you can get to the point where the other the it came with two main books you had one which was the rules and how to just generally play and then the other book was more the what they called the i think they actually called the role play book so it really was how you could go from playing Warhammer Quest to more of a role-play thing, where one of the players finally you know, is essentially the GM. 
And you had rules in there for every single race available for Warhammer at around about the time of maybe 4th and 5th edition. So between a bunch of friends who had decent collections of Warhammer figures, you could represent you know, an entire dungeon that is actually, you know, the the inside of some lizardman, uh, you know, temple, or uh, you know, you could just have your dungeon completely populated by the undead, uh, because of course the the Warhammer Quest box came with like undead and Skaven and orcs and everything. You know, it was a full on just smorgasbord of fantasy stuff to kill. But yeah, I think in that way it was a very good uh, intro into uh, role playing in that sense. Um, and it, surprisingly, again, I would say it was so popular that you then see companies kind of trying to replicate it to a certain extent. So again, like uh, uh, Rackham with Hybrid. Um, more recently, you can say maybe Kingdom Death and Journey Wrath of Demons tap into that kind of play experience. And of course, Mantic, who kind of, you know, uh, uh, that, uh, the, the other alternative to Games Workshop have recently done a Kickstarter for um, Dungeon Dungeon something, which is basically it's basically Warhammer Quest. Anyone else play Warhammer Quest, or is it just me? <laughs> just nope, me. no, no, just here. me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I see what it you sounds mean. Sounds like you had fun. Oh, it was great. <laughs> no, it was really good. Um, Warmaster. So Warmaster is a ten millimeter war game. Uh, so that means like a, a base of uh, a single base represents like something like 30 men. So you've got a stri- you, a base would have two strips of soldiers on it and those soldiers are, you know, stood next together. So they're not individual figures. So in Warmaster, it was very easy to represent very large battles going on. Uh, because of the very nature of the game, heroes and wizards and stuff play a very minor role. It's not hero hammer. They're not going to, uh, so, so heroes and commanders attach to units to bolster them rather than being able to kill stuff on their own. And Warmaster's uh, rule system is second to none. I mean, it uses the basis for Warhammer Ancients and other variants because Rick Priestley, who obviously wrote Warhammer and Warmaster, uh, also like playing various you know historical war games. And so, Warmaster is a really good default rule system for a lot of a lot of stuff. And it works incredibly well. Um, Blood Bowl, uh, I've played a good a good fair amount of. And again, uh, which 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 team do I play for that? Maybe humans and maybe undead. Undead are pretty cool for it. So Blood Bowl is essentially takes place in an alternate Warhammer world, where even though all these crazy battles go on and you've got all these different races and everyone hates each other, yada, 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 they still get together to play a basically American football where you're allowed to kill each other. Uh, and people watch Blood Bowl because wizards will watch Blood Bowl and transmit what they see through crystal balls and magic so people can then watch it through other crystal balls and so forth. It's ridiculous. Uh, but Blood Bowl, again, uh, incredibly popular and, again... You can tell that because there's been, I, I think there's at least been a half dozen Kickstarters for for Blood Bowl, Blood Bowl retro clones or variants. Like again, Mantic with Dread Bowl, which is uh, uh, which is essentially sci-fi um, American football. 
Uh, and there's some various other ones, like some have done something that's it's more like more like actual football rather than American football and stuff like that. Um, Mike, you've played some Blood Bowl? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I played some of the uh, tabletop and some of the video game. Yeah, it's uh, really great. ridiculous setting, uh, really goofy. Uh, you know, you can. Uh, it, it, we should probably bring up, of course, that Blood Bowl is not Warhammer. It yeah. just what kind of looks like it. Um, completely different settings where uh, in Blood Bowl, uh, okay, well, if you're playing the halfling team, uh, yes. you can have a treeman. Okay, you can have a halfling, little, little guy, run over, pick up the ball. A treeman can walk over, pick up the halfling, and throw him into the end zone. And if yeah. he doesn't die and holds on to the ball, uh, you got a touchdown. So that's definitely pretty good. Uh, where they have the uh, that death roller for the dwarves. Yeah. You they just kind of bring a, uh, a giant steamroller onto the field and just run people over. Uh, you had the orcs had like uh, some sort of chainsaw. The goblins had something which was basically like a killer pogo stick. Um, uh, I think the chaos dwarves may have had a cannon. Uh, yeah, it gets ridiculous. Yeah, the obviously. goblins also had like a bombardier. Yeah, and uh, there was a chainsaw. There was one other one too, besides the pogo stick. I think uh, it was the, uh, the 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 ball, the ball and chain. Oh yeah, oh yes, yeah, 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 yeah. The fanatics. I, f- I freaking hate them. I hate them so much in Warhammer that in Blood Bowl they're just even more annoying. Um. <laughs> I think, because I didn't actually have a Fnatic model, but I had one from Talisman. So I used that in Blood Bowl. Um, well, I'm not even going to talk about Talisman, because Talisman is just a board game that Games Workshop made that just happened to use Citadel miniatures. It's not actually Warhammer. And if you want to play Talisman, you can get it from Fantasy Flight. Uh, other games, there was Mighty Empires, which I never played. It's a really old one, but essentially it allowed you to do empire building. Again, it used kind of like a hex map. Uh... And yeah, it, you can. I think you, they kind of brought back the idea of that hex map type thing uh, as a plastic kit, uh, as an add-on for either Warhammer or there's the equivalent for Warhammer Forty Thousand. So again, you know, you can use it as part of a campaign gameplay. So you've got like territories to you know, capture and so forth. Uh, and then in White Dwarf, they did other silly things like a Bretonian jousting game or. Uh, do they do like a barroom brawl type game for orcs? Oh, they did yeah, tons, they did. They did tons, tons of stupid little things. But you know, <laughs> that was back when White Dwarf was actually worth buying. Um, well, and they gave, as you mentioned before, with the hex maps, even when Games Workshop released actual campaigns for the for Warhammer yeah. the game, which they do not do anymore. Yeah, because also like with Mordheim, they also made Mordheim essentially available, uh, so you could play with any race of within Warhammer as uh, as warbands. Uh, so, again, that just opened up the scope of what you could do with Mordheim. So, yeah, that's, that's all the spin-off games, I think. Uh, yep, yep. So, um, why do we want to play, or why do we want to run Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay? Um, Mike... Why do you want to play or run it? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of reasons. Not even before we even talk about the setting. You know, I was a I was a nerdy little kid back in middle school, and you know, I had my little Warhammer miniatures and all that. And I was painting them on the weekends. So there's definitely some nostalgia for me uh, when it comes to the Warhammer setting. Uh, and you know, I really liked it when I was just kind of reading over the basic background material and kind of getting into the game. And then now when I kind of 
take a step back a little bit older and I'm looking down at the details of the setting, there's a lot of depth to it. There's a lot of really interesting um, considerations with how, uh, let's say, chaos exists and how perhaps, you know, these, these other mortal gods are actually part of the existing chaos gods. Maybe Sigmar is part of Korn, the, uh, the god of fury and blood. So there's, there's really kind of interesting depth and areas that you can explore in the setting. But likewise, it's also fairly open, so there's a lot of room for me as uh, a game master to be able to uh, make my own village or uh, expand on a particular uh, empire province and really provide the game that I want to I have and the story I want to tell. So it, it kind of uh, scratches that itch where there's, there's enough background detail to uh, give me a game uh, in a world that I can explore, but there's not too much overbearing detail that's really going to hold me back. Uh, there's not too much, let's say, meta plot or that sort of thing. Um, and then even beyond that, it's kind of like this fantasy version of Call of Cthulhu. So you get to play these characters who are in way over their heads uh, and just kind of see what kind of uh, hijinks ensue, which is uh, always just pretty fun and interesting for a game. So... That's why I like uh, like Warhammer as a role-playing game, and uh, also kind of why I like it as a as a, a game setting with the miniatures game. Mm. Cool. Yeah, I think I think as a role-play game setting, it is that idea of being way you know you you're just like a bunch of locals from some village because you know the Warhammer setting has enough room for you to create your own little patch of uh, dirt that's yours for your campaign and just the idea that these poor folk just get way in over their head of with uh with this chaos cult or or um or you know having to deal with rampaging beastmen or perhaps some necromancer um i'd be interesting say running warhammer either running or, or, or using the setting for warhammer say of Talia or Astalia because they're so because those setting those locations Warhammer world because they're so they're much further away from chaos. Chaos isn't as even even there is not as uh, as important. So you could really get more into say even more of a, 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 a gritty kind of setting where humans are the main things, uh, and and look at the setting that way. Um, and then introduce everything else, so it's everything seems a lot more, f- a lot more fresh rather than oh look it's just another orc, you know. You don't want you don't kind of want that feel. You want when things turn up in the setting to really kind of shock or or to be exciting for the players. Yeah, I think going off those things, the setting just appeals to me because like everyone said, you're just all in, <clears throat> you're in over your head at all times. I like the scarcity of it, like. Your whole goal of the game is not just to survive, but just to become competent at whatever you're trying to do. It's not to be the hero of the day. It's just, we're going to get along, and maybe at the end of the day we'll do something. And that, to me, feels more... It's just a nice change of pace from always having to do the high end. I'm the, we're going to be the hero. We're going to go out. We're going to save the day. Instead of, you know, I'm going to try and walk around this town and hope I don't die. I don't catch the plague. I don't lose a limb. And then maybe we'll find something to eat. And so it makes it more micromanaging, which I enjoy. Cool. Uh, Chick, what 
from you, from what you've heard and everything, what kind of grabs your interest uh, from it as a role-play game? Well, it's been around forever, and I haven't played it yet, so that alone kind of makes me want to give it a try, see what all the uh, the hubbub is. Um, what you guys have mentioned, it all sounds really interesting, and there's a, a big, huge backstory, and I'm a, a big backstory kind of fan. Um, not really sure how the low-level zero characters are really going to appeal how much they will appeal to me that's not really the game type of game that i usually like to play but maybe for a change i would enjoy it jake that's a damn lie <laughs> let's be serious you want to play as a rat catcher you want to play as a as a cook who's been hired by the magistrate into a secret conspiracy and uh you're gonna have to go after those uh, evil rat men with your rolling pin that may be true, but I want to have the opportunity to move beyond being the head of the Rat Catcher Guild or the um, the sous chef or whatever the, the later level classes are called. <laughs> but that's the beauty of it is that you do. I mean, uh, so so should we? I can I actually have the book right here. I mean, I could talk about some of the careers that kind of go through. Is that second edition you're it. looking at? All right, Jake, we're going to look at first edition. Oh. First edition right here, because that's, that's the best. Okay. So let's look at some of the basic careers, just because this is kind of fun and interesting, uh, if I can find the right page. Okay. Tell me how I go from being a baker to being okay. anything All right. okay. incredibly so, fun. So basically, Jake, like, uh, you, you have the starting careers, and, and, and starting careers have... have um, have exit careers. They have a, a selection of careers that once you've you've maxed out in that career, you can exit to. Or okay. you can so so essentially, if you once you max out being a rat catcher, you can go on to being one of two or three new careers. And of course, they in turn have their own exit careers. Um, so in that way, it, it does allow you to suddenly kind of like kind of you're, you're essentially forging your own kind of life path of, of careers um, as you and, and gaining new skills that way. In some respects, you can see where, say, uh, the Iron Kingdom's roleplay game took some inspiration with the careers, but I think Iron Kingdom's is a bit more flexible in how you combine careers and, and move through them, whereas Warhammer's kind of a bit more gritty real like you start as a rat catcher the next level up from that is dog catcher or you know you get that kind of thing or like i, I would say a rat catcher would go on to be as mike said like the town uh, a town warden and then on from that maybe you're looking at say uh, a man at arms or 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 a uh, or or the or an executioner or, right, or something but, like that yep. but what i'm saying is man at arms is where you start the game at first level in other fantasy yeah exactly exactly yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i don't want to play you know the level negative 10 to zero but that's why it's <laughs> fun because, because I, no I, one no one suspects you that's why you can get into things and just be and no one suspects that you're going to be the guys that that um you know kind of cause the downfall of this grand conspiracy of cultists yeah, yeah. So, Chay, let's talk specifics here. Let's talk about the rat catcher. Okay. You start off, Everybody's you're walking through the sewers, classic, all right? You're, you're, you're stabbing rats with your, your pointy stick. Mm -hmm. 
and, and you get really good at it, Chig. You get really good at it. Maybe, maybe you even fought a Skaven. Yeah, maybe yeah, a beastman. yeah. Because people then don't you believe in up, Skaven Chig. in the Empire. No one believes in Skaven. They're they're an urban legend. Oh no, those are, no, no, those are just beastmen. Those are just beastmen. <laughs> yeah, it just kind of got in the sewers. Who knew? Who knew how it happens? It's kind of short. There's not a conspiracy of evil ratmen living subterranean under the ground, plotting to overthrow our entire empire. That's ridiculous, and you're crazy for suggesting that. So you're a rat catcher. You got really good at poking things with your stick. You know, you, you maxed out your specialist weapon sling or your immunity to disease. That's a good skill. That's a good one. Well, sure. Okay, right. so where are you going to go, Jake? Where are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, where are you going to go from there? Well, these are the exit careers for rat catcher in first edition. The bodyguard. Okay, you're really good at poking things with that stick. Why don't we give you a club? Okay, pretty good. Maybe a foot pad. Maybe you, you know, getting into the underworld a little bit, you know. And you also have a instead of your sharp stick, maybe you have uh, a a a board with a nail in it or something. <laughs> maybe maybe you become a grave robber because you know what, handling dead bodies is a lot better than raw sewage. More money. <laughs> yeah. More money. Or maybe finally they make you a jailer because you wanted to work for the constabulary but you smelled too bad. Okay. okay, so that's that's you know, that's one example. All right, all right Chig, uh, you don't sound you don't sound thrilled yet. So let's move on to the seaman. Let's look at that guy. Okay. So the seaman starts out. You know, he's uh, really good at tying knots and uh, sailing. He can scale sheer faces. That's that's definitely a good ability. Uh, he has a seventy-five percent chance to consume alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is great. Uh, his trappings include a bottle of cheap spirits. Excellent. Uh, but what are his exit careers? Where can he go from there? Well, he can become a full boatman. Maybe he can work the helm. All right, that's definitely good. Mm-hmm. A pilot. You could have a little little raft on the Reich that you, you pilot with your... You know, maybe you can do gondola rides. I don't know. That's good. <laughs> a raconteur. I'm not sure what that is, but we'll, we'll leave that one be. You can become a full sea captain if you get a ship. Uh, that's one of the interesting things is that I think for a lot of the advanced careers, you need to have particular items. Yeah. A, uh, uh, a raconteur, by the way, is a storyteller. So, so you can, no, go, you can go from seaman to bard. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, I'm, I'm actually just kind of looking through. I think you need to have certain items and skills to go into a future. Yeah, you do. Uh, you need certain things. So you need to have had done certain careers. Yeah. Well, sure, you have to have the prerequisites to get into the um, prestige class. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, that's, that's exactly what it is. Um, so you can become a sea captain or something. Perhaps a slaver. Maybe you become a little evil. And uh, Right, come. Slavery is banned in the Empire, I think. I think it so is, yeah. That's not good, but okay. Um, maybe you're in Tilia or something. Or maybe, finally, Chig, you could become a smuggler. You could become Han Solo. I'm sold. I, I will start the game as a seaman. All right. Perfect. Perfect. And we'll give you a little halfling named Chewbacca. Sweet. All right. So there we go. Is that the um, the dog and the rat catcher? There's definitely a dog and the rat catcher. Yeah. And third. Oh, yeah. You still get the dog. Yeah. I mean, yeah. in this setting, even starting, you don't start off as a wizard. You start off as some sort of like hedge, hedge wizard kind of local crazy person. And, uh, An undocumented wizard. Yeah, you, you, your your powers. You, you're not really even that good at magic because I think the things you do are like curses and hexes and and general good luck 
charms. It's not like you can really command uh, magic in some magnificent way. Okay, but, but assuming that I make it through the career path system... You'll get will better, I, yeah. Will I ever be, you know, Gandalf, or will I be stuck No, forever? unlikely, yeah, unlikely. No. Okay. The Warhammer well, world is it, it, de it depends on the edition, actually. So, first edition is very, very low-powered. Second edition is slightly more powered. You know, you can actually get to becoming an arch wizard, and then definitely in third edition, they they up the ante a little bit. You know, yeah, you uh, there's still the wizard. rat catcher, but you can you can start off as an apprentice wizard. You know, you you start off somewhat competent. Acolyte, um, acolyte, then apprentice wizard, then wizard. Okay, I've been corrupted. I've been corrupted. But don't start too powerful, to say, man. You're not an apprentice yet. <laughs> but you will more than likely the, the, die before you get to those high levels because Warhammer is a horrific. The That's uniting theme of all of these games, all these uh, role-playing games, uh, different editions, is that you are a a, a person, tr an adventurer trying not to die of your own incompetence. Yeah. Okay, but but I'm a schlub in real life. Why would I want to be a schlub in my game? Because um, it's fun? I don't know. I guess. Okay. Works for, a works for you guys. I will try it. I'll try anything. There's a certain so. dark comedy to um, the Warhammer Roleplay setting, much in the same way, there's a definite dark comedy element to say Unhallowed Metropolis as well. Again, Unhallowed Metropolis, the likelihood of surviving is low. You will either, if you and if you do survive, you'll mostly have either gone mad or your body will be wrapped with strange corruption, or you you you've already been bitten by a zombie or something. And in much in the same way, the Warhammer world is just, oh my god, oh my god, we're all going to die. And the comedy comes out in, how the hell did we survive that? Or, I can't believe we've become that evil. Or when mm. you do die, it's not even usually from fighting. It's usually yeah. an infection. You get <laughs> an infection, executed. Yeah. Well, that's why you take yeah, assistance yeah. to disease, clearly. <laughs> Yep, yep. Or ability, 75% ability to consume alcohol. Perfect. All right, guys. So that's it. That's that's Warhammer right there. Um, I'll totally run a game online if you guys want me to. Yep. I think we should do that. We should definitely play Warhammer. <laughs> It'd be fucking hilarious. Um, I'm totally playing a flagellant, and I really want to go into the city of Mordheim. And, uh, You're playing flatulence? A flagellant, yeah. I, I want to be a... a oh, like no, a no, no, not, fla not flatulent. <laughs> I'm sorry the first time. I'm sorry. I don't think you can right. start off as flagellant. Um, ooh, you I might think just you have to be a zealot for a little while. A zealot, yeah, I'll be a zealot. That's fine. You know, burn the witch, beastman, burn them, burn them all. You know, that's fine. He's got some weird stone. Shoot him. Pretty much. Pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Good stuff. Um. So I think that's that's it for Warhammer tonight. Uh, closing remarks. Um. I don't know, Bryce. Do you have a do you have a Twitter account that you want people to contact you on, or do you have a, a future podcast that you might be doing that you want to pimp? I don't know, Mike. Do I? Uh, we'll get around to it eventually. There will be some comic adventures of Bryce and Mike. That's for another day. Totally. So with that, um, I think that's it. Uh, thanks everyone for listening to this episode. Uh, if you want to get in contact with us and ask us some questions about Warhammer or something like that, uh, you can shoot us an email over at darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. Uh, you can uh, check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash darkerdaysradio, or check out our Google Plus community, where it's always really hopping. And that's... Uh, just go on to uh, Google Plus and search for Darker Days Radio, and you should find us. 
or check out the show notes where you have links to Facebook and G+. So I think that's pretty much it. And uh, yeah, thanks, everyone. Have a good night. Bye.